Executive functioning impacts daily living for adults and kids. Some people have really strong executive functioning skills and others need more support. Dr. Nelson Dorda said telling a child with ADHD to concentrate harder to stop daydreaming is like asking a child who is nearsighted to try and see farther when he is not wearing glasses. I'm Danielle, she's Raleigh, and this is Unstuck, the special education podcast. Hi, Raleigh. Hey, Danielle. How's, How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm wonderful on this dreary day. Well, it's a good day for a podcast, I'd say. It's a good day for a podcast and a guest. And a guest. Our first guest. I'm so excited about this. I am, too. I We've been really excited to get a guest on here. And what a better first one than our friend Lauren. Hello. Hi, Lauren. <laughs> Hi, guys. So Lauren um, is a former special ed teacher, and she currently supervises teachers and uh, teaching staff and has a lot of practical knowledge about executive functioning and ADHD, amongst a lot of other things. But, and, I, and might I add, and I appreciate the executive functioning piece for students, we also could use it for some of our adults. Don't want to call anybody out, just saying. Some of our adults could use it. Is it because I was 20 minutes late today? Well, okay, fine. <laughs> that's that's, that's my clever way of saying it. <laughs> it's because I'm never on time. Yeah, yeah. But, but I do, I mean, this is something we've been talking about a lot. I think how we, it's almost, it's hard sometimes for, I think, adults and maybe kids in the minute, in the moment, to really think about, um, you know, how are we addressing some of those executive functioning challenges and challenges that come with ADHD, which a lot of times are executive functioning challenges, and how are we dealing with that before things get too out of control and too hard to manage? And I think sometimes it's hard for people to wrap their brain around implementing some accommodations and strategies that are just kind of blanket throughout the, the classroom setting or a school setting. What's a huge missing piece that I think people don't recognize? Absolutely. I can tell you that, again, I, I went to school many moons ago, and they certainly were not focused on that as an OT. I wasn't learning necessarily that primarily or having it connected to working in pediatrics or in education. And Lauren, I don't know about you and learning how to become a teacher, if that was something they talked about a lot. Uh, well, going through grad school and then even my experience working with other OTs, I always thought executive functioning had to do with handwriting. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> hey, no shame in, in that. Yeah. Did not have a lot of um, knowledge provided to me, even in school or um, where I worked before, um, that it has to do with that, like sequencing and just organizing your thoughts. Um, Initiating tasks is a big one. Yep. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, you're probably a really good example, as all of us are, of sort of learning on the fly. And this is something we spoke about in previous um, episodes of losing that chain almost of like this, you know, this um, professional's taught me what I know. I'm going to teach the next person and really having those trainings and having that um, both in the moment coaching, but also proactively setting up a space or working, you know, proactively with plans for kids about how to address some of those needs. Because I do think... Um, and I'm a big champion of executive functioning, I think those issues combined with anxiety, maybe some depression, are really overloading kids. And it's possible we could make our lives easier if we started thinking more about how to address those concerns proactively. Well, to me, it's like executive functioning is like the silent killer of special Whoa. education. 
because it's just this so significant dark. in so many different areas. And so people Absolutely. assume that it's ADHD, executive functioning. So all right. of your, aside from like the brief, all of your assessments, when people are like, oh, I've done an executive functioning assessment for a student, most of the time it's an ADHD function assessment, mm-hmm. which executive functioning happens with kids with trauma, with kids, like you said, with anxiety, depression. Anytime I'm anxious or dysregulated at all, all my executive functions go. Oh, the absolutely. Door. So well, it's, like, it's sort of like the high and high. Uh, yeah, I can speak a hierarchy mm-hmm. where we're thinking about those basic needs first, and then we're you know, and if if our basic needs are not being met or we're overloaded, forget the higher level thinking, which is what really we're talking about here. And I think you know, certainly I'm not promising that if you just set up your classroom the right way, and, and or in a way that's more user-friendly for students that that's going to solve all your problems but I do think you know we talk a lot about and Lauren you can you you know we were talking about this prior to coming on the air so to speak um, about a clean environment a structured clean organized environment right Mm -hmm. is very very uh, important for learning yeah I think especially now with the staffing issues it's really important to have your students be somewhat independent so starting from the basics is having a classroom organized, having the kids know where things are. If instead of them coming up to you and asking for a pencil, they know where to go to get a pencil. Right. To start like and initiate tasks on their own. Um, if students are pulling you in all different directions and asking for your help, like they need to be more independent. Yeah. One of the things we used to do, do you remember we used to zone the classroom? So yeah. you would zone the whole classroom and then you'd have students draw a map so that they knew how the steps of getting their math work together, for example. First, I'm gonna go get a pencil, then I'm gonna go get the math folder, then I'm gonna go back to my desk and actually draw it out for them or have them draw it out so that you're not creating, you're creating that independence that you were talking about instead of any learned helplessness. And I feel like the immediate jump for everyone is like, well, they can't do it We'll do for you, yeah. Right, and so instead, how about you tell a student, like, why don't you start with number one and then I'll come back in a minute and, you know, creating, helping them create some structure and strategy so that they're able to use executive functioning supports throughout their life. Well, and it's also building confidence. And I think it's, you know, you have to become an expert on your students. So, you know, whether you're talking about a classroom of eight or 28, you ha- there has to be a point where you're very well-versed in how many of your students. And I mean, you know, a lot of, of our backgrounds are coming from a classroom of smaller sizes where all of the kids have some type of need. But even in a larger classroom, maybe you know that your top 70% of your students have more independence and can do, you know, follow some of your verbal directions and can finish an assignment and know where it goes. But there's no harm in doing the whole get ready, do done. Sarah Ward um, is a huge influence on, especially where, um, you know, my experiences of learning executive functioning. And I think being able to kind of say, well, this isn't going to hurt anybody if we did it this way. It's not going to make anyone anyone's job harder necessarily students wise, like having that information visually presented and understanding that because it's also helping kids learn how in just in general in life, how to break tasks down how to understand how long it's going to take to do something, how much effort and mental, you know, um, stamina do I need for this task? Like learning about yourself and how you're going to approach something is not a bad skill to have in life in general. Yeah, I think the visual piece is perfect. Or, or, I mean, I've seen it so many times where you tell your classroom, okay, we have five more minutes. We have two more minutes, but there's a lot of kids that have no idea what that means and that concept of time is just not there for them um 
which I find that in myself with my ADHD, <laughs> where I actually listened to a podcast about adults with ADHD, and it, I think it's the Pomodoro method. Okay. And it's like setting a timer for yourself for specific tasks so that you don't get hyper-focused or stuck on other ones. Um, and you're able to actually accomplish the goal. But I think like having another sensory piece for the things that need to be done, like a visual of like what your desk needs to look like or mm-hmm. what math, um, like you were saying about math, like what you need for math or like a map of the classroom, how to even just get your math supplies is super important. Yeah, and, and the creating the independence is so important for helping, empowering teachers to say, I'm, I'm so aware of what this student's capability is. And then you slowly build that up, but it does build that confidence and that self-esteem for that student of, well, I maybe I never thought I was good at math. I was never good at writing. I was never good at science, but I'm learning to accomplish small things independently. And then it starts to feel like, well, I actually am good at this, boosting that self-esteem and maybe helping with some of the anxiety. Certainly I see it um, in some of my students that are on the um, autism spectrum where that anxiety is just pervasive, the more successes they have, the more that they're now feeling confident in like, I can take on that challenge. I don't need that adult with me all the time. We don't have adults to spare at this point. That's just the bottom line. And we're needing to maximize the amount of, you know, what we can help kids accomplish on their own and guide them through that. It doesn't mean we're leaving them out in the wind if they don't understand a concept, certainly, but it's just how are we setting up our environment for the most success and the most like bang for your buck, I guess. Well, I think that in having read, written, whatever, thousands of IEPs over the years, I feel like a lot of times... Thousands? Oh, I'm sure thousands. Oh, okay. Yeah. Would that be 10,000 or 1,000? I would say, like, maybe closer to 1,000. Okay. <laughs> I don't well, know if I've read 10,000. It's just, you know, it's it's really, uh, it's awe-inspiring to say thousands. thousands. I get it, I get it. Thousands. I mean, we have a lot of years of under our belts. That's true, that's true. Say. Yeah. So, in reading them, a lot of times, teachers aren't educated, not for any fault of their own, in in executive functioning. So I see spelling goals, I see writing goals, all of these things that I'm like, mm, is this for executive functioning? Yep. Because I think for teachers, and myself included, I mean, Sarah Ward, not to name drop her again, but when I went to her she professional it. development, mm-hmm. it opened my eyes to all of the other areas of executive functioning. It actually mm-hmm. like drove my passion yep. for teaching other people because it really is, there's so much unknown about it that you don't learn in the classroom and so in reading these IEPs it's like it's not really a decoding challenge there's something with executive functioning there and really digging deep into what the challenge really is versus let's just make up a disability not make up a disability but you know what I mean like do I Well, and even as an occupational therapist, I can say for doing this for many, many years, it's like the, the, absolutely that's a shift that I've taken over the past few years is recognizing that a student may, you know, certainly they may have some fine motor development issues and and sensory processing, but so often it's executive functioning that's been targeted in in a way that may not actually be getting at the root of what the issue is. And I think OTs and speech pathologists are really uniquely qualified to work with students with executive functioning challenges. And it's becoming something that I've, I am really championing getting into IEPs for kids, making that part of a you know an objective or a goal, the area that I'm overseeing as well as a teacher, and really getting people combined forces on that area because I think it's huge. And again, I think about these kids who are struggling with the 
just the function of school. How am I a student? How do I do these? You know, how am I initiating? What I'm sitting next to these kids who all know what to do and I don't. I'm not as good as them. I'm a loser. I'm this, I'm that. Now you feel badly about yourself and school is horrible and I hate school and I'm shutting down. If you get to the root of that, maybe you're helping that student open up to, oh, actually there's a way for me to learn this. I'm, it's not that I can't learn it. I just learn it differently. And I think we're missing that. Well, let's also talk about reward systems. Oh, all right. When you're thinking about executive function, because I always use the example of you can pay me or offer me a million dollars to swim across a river or a lake. I don't know, something I mean, to swim. A body of water that's body deeper than your height. That I can't yeah. walk through. Gotcha. But if I can't swim, I'm never going to make it there. So I'm never going to get that reward. So for our kids, as much as you're like, oh, we'll just incentivize them to be able to finish their X work. Or if they don't have the executive functioning skills to be able to start that task, they're never going to meet that goal. And it's just going to develop more of that learned helplessness and that confidence piece that you're talking about. I, I do wonder though, for those that may not be as aware, what do, what do you see as a, say a teacher, Lauren, that you would, that would kind of um, pique your interest that this child might have executive functioning challenges? What are things that you might notice that we might miss if we weren't paying attention? Oh, I mean, messy desk, um, following two-step directions, mm. um, even with a visual. Um, I was just thinking that the reward system, I think, in going back to like teachers that don't know too much about executive functioning or the depths of it, um, you don't see them incentivizing like the kids in, a, in these small steps. It's more, I don't want to use the word punishment, but it's like, well, you should be able to do this math worksheet. It's like, no, that right. is really, really hard for that kid. So kind of um, penalizing them in any way because they didn't do that is going to obviously go back to like that self-esteem and that overall view of school and like being a student and I didn't do my work. But like initiating the task, good job. Like that's yep. hard for you. So, um, and I, I think there's a lot of teachers and people that work with kids that do not understand that. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes that does affect the kids. But I think the more people know about it yeah. and how deep it goes, it's not just writing. That's right. It's not just writing. I think, about, I think about simple, we had a kid once that when, you know, you earned money every day in order to go and cash it in on mm -hmm. Fridays. And you could save that money for a bigger prize. Not or, actual money. Not actual money. <laughs> you could save that money for a bigger prize or you spend it each week. And there's this kid who literally would spend his money every Friday and mm -hmm. get the most bang for his buck. He'd buy two for one pencils. So he'd uh, yeah, $5. Love those pencils. <laughs> 10 pencils every Friday. He could not stop himself from buying things. He couldn't, he couldn't think delay gratification. Save, yeah, that delay yeah. gratification piece, and that's that's just such a nuance mm -hmm. for executive function. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's just, you miss those. I would. I miss those things. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. All right. So take that student now that you know what you know about executive functioning. If he was motivated to earn anything else, for example, how besides could you pencils. besides pencils? <laughs> well, and if they're, I mean, I come mean, on, a backpack full of pencils. Who doesn't want the big ticket items? That's you know, true. what are you doing with those pencils? You making a house out of it? Yeah. Not going to be very stable. What What could you coach him on differently? How could you change how you structured the earning of something for him to maybe get uh, to save to learn how to save? I, you know, I think looking back, what I'd probably do is look at some of the bigger ticket items for him and say, is this Lego set something that you'd want to earn instead? And 
Um, what what I would have done is probably taken a picture of that and then cut it out and instead of giving him dollars every week, give him pieces of the puzzle mm-hmm. for and then once he com- up for the pictures and then once he completes that Lego set picture, he's earned it versus trying to help him navigate dollars and then you'd work back from there, right? right. You want to like highly structure it and then pull back on those. Well, I think resources. that's such an important point you make because I think. Sometimes, um, in my experience, when you share out ideas to people in the moment in the classroom working with these kids all day long, it feels overwhelming to them. I've definitely gotten that feedback of like, well, this is great, but like, I feel overwhelmed. Well, what you try to remind them of is we're not, this is not, it's like training wheels on a bike. We don't want to leave the training wheels on forever. If the kid learns to ride the bike, we don't put the training wheels back on. Once they've gotten to a point where you can change the expectations, we're always doing that. We should always be doing that, whether it's a behavior plan, whether it's an educational approach, we should always be changing the goalposts because things change. We don't need to provide as much support. The idea is you start with that maximum scaffolding, that maximum amount, and then you are pulling away and you're changing the way that you manage that so that kids can then rise to the next challenge. So we wouldn't just say every time he wants to earn something, we do it the exact same way. And maybe in the beginning, maybe every couple of, you know, you got to throw him a couple pencils here and there just to keep it, you know, keep him invested. Maybe at first you can't just go no pencil. That's a lot, you know, like I'm, I'm totally off pencils this week. Can't do it. But you work towards that ultimate goal. Again, these things sound hard to implement in the moment. I think for some people, it's just like that extra thing I've got. Oh, now I got to do this. Like, but let's think about how that's going to help you in the long run, right? Yeah, I think it's important to know your students because maybe there's going to be a day, especially with more complex students who maybe have like behavioral issues and that executive functioning piece, like maybe there is going to be a day where that kid you know they can write their name and the rest of it's going to be hard, but like another intervention that you can use is okay, today because I know I know you can write your name and maybe they ask the right way that you do write their name, but tomorrow uh, and they come in, they're in a good mood or whatever and that's their first step, like executive functioning wise, like they, you know that your student can do that. Um, that's their first step and then once they're done with that, then you go check in with them, whereas Maybe other kids are more independent or need more support, and that just gives the teacher more time to kind of circulate and check the room. And then, I mean, even as a group, um, while you're giving instruction to the full class, like always having one solid, like first step, a visual. I used to use um, chart paper and use all of the colors of rainbow <laughs> and each step was a different color and then making sure that your students understand with like a thumbs up thumbs down thumbs in the middle i love that one <laughs> it's silent um but you just kind of assess does everybody understand what the first step is um and then moving from there and again you just really have to know your students because mm-hmm. some kids they got the first step you know that they're on the right track and they'll be independent for probably the whole block and then the other kids, especially the ones with that executive functioning deficits, um, they're going to need your help more. Um, and then consistently checking in, but giving them that independence, like achievable steps that they can do. And then again, that goes back to the self-esteem piece and like even the reward piece too. Um, they feel good about themselves. Maybe they're earning just to, they're earning something 
special to just do their math work or even start it. And then that just kind of builds confidence and independence, self-esteem. Well, and sometimes the reward is, I notice this with a lot of students too, that the reward, you think it's a child that needs a lot of incentivizing, and then you realize the reward is actually that they feel good about what they can produce. I've seen that with writing, especially as an OT. Oh, you know, this child doesn't write, can't write, won't write. And the more you can adapt around the weakness, if there is really a deficit there, and the production and the creativity comes out, you see that that's actually the reward. Like I get to get Mm -hmm. feedback about the story I wrote and everybody really likes my story. So I'm motivated now to add to it. I'm motivated. I see kids who say, you'd say that kid's not a writer. They don't write. They're creating stories in their free time. Sometimes it's just, they want to do well. We want to succeed as humans. We want people to be proud of us. They, you know, all of these kids are sort of that in that same boat. I mean, they want adults to think they're awesome. And the more they feel good about that, the better you're going to see the success again there are certain there are going to be the kids that just no matter what you do they have some other things going on that need to be addressed by different personnel but i think there are things you can accomplish within a classroom setting that gives kids that feeling like this routine exists i can count on it it makes me feel less anxious i think lauren in your classroom something that i always knew was kids were going to feel that they knew exactly what was coming they knew you'd prepare them for whatever was happening, whatever changes, whatever expectations. That does help immensely. Instead of, I don't know what today's going to bring, I don't know what this is gonna look like, they absolutely knew where everything was, how to get it, how the routine was gonna play out, and that's huge. When I think it goes back to what we've been saying all along around um, creating the independence for students, and really, I think the structure of your classroom learn was always that kids with that predictability they gained so much independence and you didn't need to like constantly walk around and help them independently and i think strategies in the classroom it's not again we've said this time and time again it's not going to hurt anyone to do it for a full to have it for a full classroom a strategy i think for any age honestly is those you know those paint um, swat, swab, swab, what are they called? Swatches. swatches. Yeah, the paint swatches. Samples. They, yeah. If you get a handful of those, even in kids' favorite colors, put them on their desk with one of those slide Ziploc mm-hmm, bags. Mm-hmm. Then you're walking around, you're not calling kids out, but every student has it and they can tell you whether they're crystal clear, which is the lightest color, or they're in a fog, which is the darkest color. And then you can walk around and they're not only self monitoring and checking themselves, which is an executive functioning um, right, yeah. skill. But you're also getting a gauge as to how your teaching is working or not working. Because if you have 17 kids in a fog, you're yep. clearly, right. there's something that you need to change. If you have half, great, you're making progress. But I just think having having those in place for everyone isn't harmful to anyone. No. Having a natural checklist. I had, a, I had a teacher who literally had a timer and it always like one of those fun timers, you know, Ooh. or like a a music timer for five minutes, whatever. Not all of the students needed that countdown visual, but she had it for the whole class as if it were a natural piece of right. life. Well, you make it part of the routine. It's it, it's Nobody questions it. Right. Something that I um, have done for students is I create a scale with images that are particularly engaging for that student. They get to create them. And it's a difficulty scale. Rate the level of difficulty. How hard do you think this task is going to be and how much help do you need? So the visual contains the image of something that might be challenging to them maybe they're really good at soccer but they're not so good at football so soccer is that image of somebody something they 
need more help with. But then they'll describe like, well, it's math. Math is the thing that I really struggle the most with. I usually need somebody really close by me to help me answer my questions. But they start to internalize, do I actually need you here to help me? Or am I just dependent on, as we talk about that learned helplessness a little bit, am I dependent on you doing it for me? I need to start recognizing, you know, the student is recognizing, well, I actually don't need your help for this. I think I have more competency with that than I realized. Well, the fun part about that is that you can have those conversations with students mm-hmm. and there's like a concrete visual to say like, wow, it's at the beginning of this, you were so anxious mm-hmm. that you thought this was going to be a five level of difficulty. Yep. But the reality is you only needed me twice. Well, that reflection is really big yeah. because they might say it's, you know, it's a five. It's the most difficult thing I've ever done. And then you reflect back and say, well, did you actually need me? And you see the pride. I'm telling you, you know, you really do for kids, even the stickiest brains. You see that pride like, oh, I actually did do that. That is in itself the reward. I can't stress that enough for so many kids. There are a lot of kids that are reward driven in the beginning of their journey to, you know, kind of getting unstuck. But they do start to notice that I actually like just the natural things that happen from that, the natural benefits of being successful. Yeah, that is actually something like that um, difficulty scale where the student is, I mean, they're telling you in the beginning of the day, what they think and then assessing it themselves at the end of the day. Um, that's something I've, I've used across all different kinds of settings. Like when I was in a resource room um, and to even like smaller sub-separate rooms, um, maybe a kid reading is really hard. How hard do you think reading is going to be today? Mm-hmm. Uh, one to five. I think it's going to be a five. Um, and then following up with that student at the end of the day and just hearing them say, oh, you know what? No, it's actually like a two. And just doing that consistently and them, them seeing it is not as hard as I yeah. thought it was going to be. Those check-ins are important. Like yes. kind of just checking in with kids and making the time for that. Um, and maybe that's easier to make time for when you're not sitting next to them doing everything for them. Mm-hmm. You have time to go around and kind of check in with kids. And those, those silent visuals, things that kids can just mark off in some way that, you know, alerts the teacher is huge because you're not disrupting anything. Kids aren't, you know, calling out and yelling out for your help. And it's just kind of the teacher then gets to take stock of where their, their students are at in that moment too. So I think that's really important. Yeah, I think the students like doing those check-ins like was super important they feel like oh you're actually listening to Mm -hmm. me where maybe they were in a place um before or maybe in the gen ed classroom and maybe they're coming to a different room just to see the special ed teacher but knowing that you're like acknowledging what is hard for them and just taking the time to check in with them probably feels great to know that someone's acknowledging that things are hard i think something that gets overlooked a lot within executive functioning is, I know we briefly touched on it before, but that uh, initiating tasks. Oh, yeah. I feel like it's such, one. I feel like teachers have a difficult time um, figuring out strategies on how to initiate tasks. And the check, I think the visual color-coded checklists are great. I think timers are great. Get ready, do done. The get ready, do done. So kids know what's expected of them. And I do, you know, going back to your name thing, Lauren, you know, knowing what, acknowledging what a student is capable of and just an initiating of a task can be just writing their name on the top of the paper. So write your name on the top of the paper and I'll be right back to check in with you. Um, And, you know, just, just 
giving them small steps at a time and walking away so you're not ending up doing it for them. Right. And you can even work in practice tasks. Like you can practice multi-step tasks that are maybe a little more fun, hands-on. Mm-hmm. So as an OT, I ran a group for many years for fine motor um, skills and we did a lot of crafts and it was a lot of multi-step like for, you know, what's the first step and what are the skills you need? And you can do fun things like that to build that skill so that when it comes to more of like, oh, I have to write this report, what's my first step? Or I have to complete this assignment with, you know, science. What's the, This way it's a little more like, oh, I, I, I'm learning the skill in other ways that are more hands-on more multimodal i think that's also mm-hmm. really important i'm just gonna get that plug in as an ot the, multi- well, think, the multi-sensory I think, approach i think we that's a huge 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 important piece is that multimodal mm-hmm. piece i especially as you get into middle and high school i think people focus on the content and miss the opportunity i mean we can definitely put yes. a pin in this for future conversation yeah, for sure <laughs> look at that we just came up with another podcast idea <laughs> No, I, I, I just think it's so important to have, I, I mean, something as simple as I remember my sophomore year, for me, my sophomore year in high school, instead of just dictating a history book to us, the teacher had us create children's history books, social mm-hmm. studies book for kids. And I learned so much more from that. And yep. the memory sticks with mm-hmm. me of like that content. And like, I, I do think creativity suffers when we're trying to just, again, break even. If at best we're breaking even and the creativity suffers. People just don't have that extra resource in them to, oh, let me do this creative. I'm not saying everybody, but I do think I know for myself that part goes when you're just trying to, what's the goal? Let me accomplish it. I really don't care how I get there. And we have to get back to some of that creativity. But, um, you know, that's definitely something we can expand on in the future. Put a pin in it. Put a pin in it. All right, Lauren. We have a game that we like to play. Well, we just started it. We just started started it last episode. But still, (laughs) it's, it's, we liked it the first time. I mean, it's random topic generator here. It's like, let's see what the topic is. It's how we. Close out our, our show. So, um, okay. Are these so, special ed topics? No, no. Oh, this is totally, totally off, random. off just topic. Just to know people. So, oh. I, what I've done is uh, I'll pull something up and you have the right to, we can pass the topic one time. Okay. Okay. So, the topic, the random topic today is what's the best way to travel? Plane, car, train, etc. Do you want that Ooh. one or do you want to change it? Lauren, you got, okay, go ahead. Okay, you um, I'm going to stick with this one, actually, because it was a topic of conversation on Christmas Day. Um, We talked about trains. Okay. And how, um, I mean, I guess this is kind of different than the question you asked me. Oh, well, all right. I have (laughs) taken um, a train from, where was I, or LA down to... um, San Diego and it was awesome. Okay. And it what do you like, like about that? Um, I didn't have to do anything. Okay. And I could sleep. <laughs> okay. And it was a beautiful scenery. Um, but I would love to try like the I don't know what they're called the uh, little like a bunk thing in the tree. Oh, okay. Um, uh, like over in Europe, I know they do it, but yep. I know that's something that's up and coming in the U.S. Yeah. Um, I thought it was pretty cool. Commuter rail. Yeah. No, Not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not so much the public <laughs> transportation, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, but like maybe traveling across country, I thought would be nice. pretty cool. Right. I like I that. to do too much. I like that. Enjoy the scenery. <laughs> Danielle? Well, as uh, just a humble brag coming in, as someone who's driven cross country five times, I'm going to say drive. Okay. I love a car ride. I love finding small towns. 
mm-hmm. in random states um, and staying in you know cities that you would never think to stay in. Um, so I would say traveling by car. Okay. I actually like Lauren's train idea. I mean, I was, I, so I was also inspired um, watching Forrest Gump recently. So he ran and oh, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe running's the best way, running or cycling is the best way to travel, but I, I don't like either of those. So I'm going to say, I do like the idea of a train and I actually did take a train through parts of Italy and it is a nice experience because you sort of miss the congested, overwhelming plane, you know, airport situation but you're also seeing scenery and you're not having to be the one like moving the vehicle yourself and controlling it. Um, I do notice that road rage is on the rise during this pandemic. So probably train, maybe plane would be second, but I think that's- I've thought about cycling like a long distance, but then yeah. I'm like, I yeah. can't, I don't want to- It's a lot. Like and then what if it's snowing or and raining? And then you have to camp. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, now it gets into a whole other thing. <laughs> well, anyway. Um, Thank you for joining us again. Um, Thank you for coming. Yes, thank you, Lauren, for having me. We'll have you again for sure. Um, You can catch us on the socials. Yeah, and what what is that? What are those? What are the socials? You ask. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram as Unstuck Podcast One, the number one. Can they find us at Spotify? Oh, they can. You can also find our podcast on Spotify. Big time. That's right. So um, feel free to share ideas, thoughts. Um, We like we have said, we are looking for topics. We have a generated list, but really um, this is for for ideas for people. So if there's something we're missing, catch us on one of the socials. All right. We'll see you next time. All right. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Awkward pause.